what women want from our money, we want security and we want safety. And that translates for many women into dollars in the bank. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Jean Chatsky from Her Money. In 2019, Jean published her newest book, Women with Money, and she's joining us today to discuss how women can find financial security and to really thrive with their money. Jean is a longtime financial journalist who's been featured on Oprah, MSNBC, CNN, and so many more platforms. In 2018, she launched Her Money Media, an extension of her successful Her Money podcast to encourage more women to embrace the sometimes uncomfortable topic of money and how it can be used to help them live less stressed, more purposeful lives. She has a ton of experience and knowledge, and I'm excited to share her tips with you today. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from the episode, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash gene for the complete show notes and to download your free financial emergency preparedness checklist. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Gene, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've loved all your books over the years, and it's really cool to have you on our new podcast. Well, you are a pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. So, Jean, you had been doing financial media for years, and then in 2018, you launched Her Money. Why was that the next step for you? Why was that the important place to go? I had launched the Her Money podcast a couple of years before that. What we very quickly were learning from the listeners, the, you know, the thousands of women who were tuning into this podcast who very quickly showed up on our private Facebook group was they just wanted more. They wanted more in terms of a resource that was really targeted at them. I know there is a lot of criticism out there that women don't need separate money advice, that it's not so different for women, but I believe we all learn best when we're in an environment that makes us comfortable, that makes us feel like we're taken care of, like we're heard, like we're not judged. And I wanted to create that space online. So we launched hermoney.com. We publish two newsletters a week. We publish multiple stories every day. We've been leaning into the resources that we know our readers need in this time of crisis and uncertainty. And I'm loving doing it. It's been a real adventure and process, but I've been getting a lot of great feedback and I I hope that your listeners will check us out. Absolutely. We'll have the links to your podcast and to the website in the show notes. But when we talk about creating that community and a safe place to talk, you also do Her Money Happy Hours. Can you tell me a little bit about those events and how they came to be? Yeah. And these days we're doing virtual Her Money Happy (laughs) Hours as we all social distance, but continue to drink as alcohol sales are showing. We found that one of the things that women lack is this understanding of how to start to talk about money. It's not something that many of us are comfortable with. It's not something that many of us were raised with. So we created a game, 
of sorts, a party game. We created a deck of cards with leading questions about money. And when we hold these happy hours virtually or in real life with groups of women, we pull questions from the deck and we answer them and we talk about our lives and the various ways that money impacts our lives. You know, we talk about earning and saving and investing, of course, but we also talk about our careers and our relationships and our families and our friendships and how we want to use our money to change the world and what's enough and whether it's okay to hide money in your underwear drawer. I mean, we really (laughs) go there. It's a conversation unlike conversations that many women have gone through it who have gone through it say they've ever experienced before. Absolutely. And that was one of my favorite parts of the Women With Money book is that you had stories from those events uh, built into the book and really telling the story. So I'm curious, what are some of your favorite stories or breakthroughs that you've heard or experienced through these events? Wow, that's a wonderful question. I remember a one breakthrough. A woman had just gone through a terrible, terrible divorce that left her with many thousand dollars in debt that she did not rack up. Her ex-husband had gone a little bit crazy with the credit cards and with refinancing the house and pulling out cash. And when they divorced, there was six figures in credit card debt half of which ended up on her plate to repay. And she really built her way back, you know, step by step, just repaying it, slogging it out, convincing herself that she would get through it, that she would come to the other side. And by the time we had our happy hour, she had just hit the other side. And she pulled a card from the deck that said, I spend money because. And She said, I spend money because I effing can. (laughs) And it's awesome. You know, that was a real breakthrough. Like that level of independence for her that she realized she was on the other side. She was in control of her money. You know, if she wanted to go out and buy a new dress to wear to some event, she could do that. And it wasn't going to wreak havoc with her debt repayment plans or her financial life as a whole because she had done the work, she had gotten through it, and she had taken back her power. I absolutely love that. And that ties so closely to how we talk about money here all the time, which is getting control of your money, paying attention, taking control gives you the freedom to do the things you want to do and the security and the foundation to take some risks. So can you talk to us about some of the few basic steps all women need to take to find financial security? Sure. So, I mean, I <laughs> I think back to... Um, I've been doing this a long time, um, Chelsea, as as I think you know. And one of the things that I realized, and, and I realized it about, I don't know, halfway into my career covering personal finance, which is, you know, going on three decades now, that there are really only five things that you have to do. You just have to do them over and over and over again. And so we all need to earn money right? We need to have a family income, whether you are out in the workforce, whether you have a spouse or a partner out in the workforce, we need to earn a decent living. And decent is 
enough to make you comfortable. It doesn't have to be enough to make you fabulously wealthy. It has to be enough to alleviate the worry that you're not going to be able to pay your bills. So that's decent. The second thing we have to do is spend less than we bring home. And that is where a lot of people get stuck, right? A lot of people get stuck in, particularly in the last you know, decade or so, as credit has become much more available, that we spend beyond our means. And so reining that in and creating a buffer between what you earn and what you use is step two. Step three is we got to take that money that we are not spending and save it for both short-term emergencies and long-term goals and invest it so that it's working as hard for us as we're working for ourselves. The fourth thing we have to do is protect our financial world, this world that we're building with the right insurance, a basic estate plan, emergency savings. And I think the fifth thing on the list is that we got to figure out some way to give back that makes us feel good. Because although having more money than you need to live comfortably doesn't make people more happy, giving back absolutely does. Absolutely. That's a huge point. And I want to go back and let's dive into the first one, which is earning money. And specifically around earning what you're worth. And in your book, you mention how women often drop out of the workforce to care for parents or elder relatives when that cost of care is kind of equal to their salary. They feel like it's a wash. But as I read that, we also do that with child care, right? So how can we think about this differently? And why might it be a good idea to stay in the workforce, even if child care is eating up most of our salary? Yeah, there's so many good reasons to stay in the workforce. Boy, when you try to get back in after you've taken a substantial break, you often find that you have to get back in at a lower salary, lower level of benefits, lower title than you were at when you stepped out. You stop accruing retirement benefits and social security credits. And those things are both, you know, incredibly meaningful later in life. For many people, it's a choice. I want to phrase this very carefully. If you are stepping out because you are feeling like this is what you were meant to do, like this is what you have wanted to do, you have wanted to be home with the kids, you want to be a stay-at-home mom, I totally respect that. But if you are just making that financial calculation, then I think you have to ask yourself if you're going to be truly happy staying home or if you would be happier continuing to work outside the home and and sort of follow those impulses that are all incredibly personal as well. Boy, I mean, those those are three really big ones. Absolutely. So, and on the stay-at-home mom side, if that's your choice and that's a, a beautiful choice for your family, but how can we think about what our long-term plan looks like if we choose to make that choice and make sure we're protecting ourselves because We do see instances, right, where women, they step out, they want to be stay-at-home moms, but then a divorce comes along or a spouse passes away and they end up in a really difficult financial position. So what can we do if we make the choice to be stay-at-home moms to protect ourselves? Well, the first thing that you need to do is be an equal partner in the financial life of your family, in running the financial life of your family, in the savings, the investments, the budgeting. You need to know where everything is. You can't abdicate 
this, can't take your eye off the ball. And, you know, many stay at home parents make themselves the CFO of the home in that they become the smart shoppers and the budgeters and they save a great deal of money that way, which is fantastic. But the other side is you also need to know where the investments are. You need to know what your long-term goals are. You need to know when you are aiming to retire or shift life down the road and how much that's going to cost and whether you're on a trajectory to get there. I would also say that from my experience, every person is more likely to become an active, involved investor when they've got a stake at the table. And even if you are not earning a wage, you are eligible if you have a spouse in the workforce for an IRA of your own, a spousal IRA, and you should absolutely have one. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then even you just have your own retirement dollars and divorce, obviously things would separate usually 50-50, but you still have your account. And what about women who want to start their own thing? And why might starting a business be a way to grow your wealth more substantially than staying in a career if you're not feeling fulfilled there? Starting a business can be a way to I mean, when you start a business, you are more in control of how the resources are used coming in and going out, which is not to say it's easy. I mean, if you look at the stats, most of the businesses started in this country fail every year, right? So before you go down that road, I would say, you know, figure out, is this a business or is it a hobby? Figure out, is this the sort of business that can actually support you? road test it by making it your side hustle for as long as it takes to prove the case that you will be able to bring in enough income to support you and any other people you're bringing along for the ride. And you started your own business several years ago. What surprised you about that process and what prompted you to leave standard traditional journalism? I got fired. (laughs) Like most people. No, I, I did actually get fired. I got downsized during a round of cuts at Money Magazine. I was at the time doing some freelance work. I was working for the Today Show. That was a side hustle. I was doing some stuff for Oprah. That was a side hustle. You know, I had I was doing some speaking and some books. They were all sort of on the side in addition to my job at Money. And first, I just looked for another job. Quite frankly, I was not really interested in hiring somebody, you know, an assistant and figuring out how to get her health insurance and a 401k and all of that kind of stuff. So I looked for another job and I couldn't really find one that would have replaced my former salary. But I did the math and I figured out that I could actually do better by just taking on more clients of my own and growing in that way. And so that's what I did. And I think that's the case for a lot of women, right? When we see this huge numbers of women starting businesses, it's not always that they had this huge desire to be entrepreneurial. It's that maybe their career the way it was, wasn't serving them in some way, right? And they're opting out. Exactly. I transitioned at a time when 
magazines were just on the decline. And sadly, that has continued. And so I think you need to look at your industry and read the tea leaves a little bit. I mean, what I do today, some of it is traditional journalism, but some of it falls under the heading of content creation for companies and corporations. I do a lot of work helping companies communicate with their employees about the best way to use their benefits and that sort of thing. Do you have any experiences or stories of how you've sponsored women that you've hired or that you've seen in journalism to help them look forward into how the world is changing and how their earnings trajectory moves? Well, let's see. I mean, it's funny. I feel like I have a network of women, mostly, who started as my assistant, who are now at fabulous places all throughout journalism and not journalism. Some of them are all are other personal finance experts, have become personal finance experts in their own right. Some of them are at major magazines. Some of them are at big websites. But I'm very proud of the fact that the skills that they learned working for me set them up for success. I don't know that that's quite the answer to your question, but... No, that's a beautiful thing. That's an absolutely beautiful thing. I had a chuckle, by the way, reading your book when you said that you uh, have a fantasy about starting a bakery. <laughs> I am gluten-free and I always have this like thing in the back of my head of like, maybe I'll just start a bakery. But I know that I would not actually enjoy that once it got going. I know, right? Well, first of all, I would. I don't know that I would not enjoy it. I think I might enjoy it, but I went to cooking school for six months early in my working life before I became a personal finance writer. I, I had visions of being a food writer. And during those six months, I put on about 15 pounds and decided that it really wasn't best for me to spend so much time around food. So, so I'm a, I'm a very good home cook, but I'm not going to be working in that way. I think for me, I would enjoy the baking, but it's all the other things that go in business. And I think that was the next question for you is like, when you're looking at starting your own business, when you're looking at potentially leaving a career to have something that serves you better, how do you recognize what all the other work is? Because I think a lot of times we come up with some hobby and we think this is going to be a great business. I have fun with this. This will be a fun business without realizing everything that goes along with it. So how can we test? That's why you have to test it, right? That's And you have to test it with the rigor that you would approach an actual business. So let's use baking because we're talking about baking. <laughs> if you make the best brownies or biscuits or, or whatever it is and people say to you, well, you should sell that. Well, you know, try making them in bulk for a while and try selling to local stores in your area. You know, do it on weekends and see what the actual interest is and see how you like spending eight hours a day rather than, you know, the occasional couple of hours doing it. Look into if, you know, I don't, I know that rules and restrictions vary widely based on where you live, but are you allowed to actually do that out of your home? Do you have to rent space in a commercial kitchen? There's so much involved. And then as you run the numbers, you know, figure out, okay, how many of these do I actually have to sell in order to pay my rent, in order to keep my car, in order to buy health insurance? And it gets really real, really fast. 
And what about, I think sometimes we talk about investing in particular and how women keep more money in cash and how we invest later and whether that is a reflection of not wanting to take risk. How do we encourage ourselves to dive in and to invest in our own future, whether that's business, whether that's planning for retirement, uh, what can make us a little more comfortable about thinking long-term? It's a really hard question to answer right now. I mean, it's it's just a hard concept to focus on right now, right? Because the market seems so volatile and not just seem, the markets are so volatile. The markets have been, I mean, this is just an, an unprecedented period of volatility that we are we are in hopefully emerging from. And we know when we look at how women, what women want from our money. And I I asked this question many, many times, hundreds of times as I was writing women with money, you know, we want security and we want safety. And that translates for many women into dollars in the bank. The problem with dollars in the bank is that they earn you nothing. And so that is a fine place for your emergency cushion. It is the appropriate place for your emergency cushion, but money that you are trying to turn into a stream of income or a cushion for your future has to work harder than that. Because if it's not, it's actually losing money after taxes and inflation. And that means you've got to put that money to work and you have to invest it. I think the best way to get comfortable with it is by actually doing it. What people realized coming out of 2008 and what I believe that we'll eventually realize coming out of this period is, you know, if you're a long-term investor, just continuing to buy on a regular basis will in fact set you up for success. The thing that you have to do and the thing that you can control is your savings rate. And you've got to get your savings rate. And it can include matching dollars if you get them from your employer. you got to get it up to 15% because Social Security will only cover about 40% of people's pre-retirement income. Um, it'll only cover about 40% of what you're spending pre-retirement. So you've got to cover the rest. Absolutely. And what about investing in real estate? I know that we haven't yet seen a real estate impact from this crisis. We're very, very early in it, but we did in 2008, 2009 see massive drops in real estate prices. And has that changed how you think about homes as an investment or your experience? I know you actually bought your house right before the last crash. Can you tell us about that a little bit? (laughs) Yes, I did. And I will... um... Look, I love my house. No, no question. I love my house, but I will never get out of my house the money I put into it. I just, you know, for me, I just bought at the wrong time. And, and I am, I'm okay with that. I've come to terms with that because to me, a house is for savings. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about people who buy dilapidated fixer uppers, put some work into them and flip them, right? That's a different game. But if you're talking about the house that you live in, I am a big fan of paying down a mortgage before you retire and knowing that you are going to be able to use that paid off mortgage as a supplemental retirement account. That's a big asset that you can continue to live in if you need to live in it or want to live in it. But it's also a big pool of money that you can draw on should you want to buy something else, should you want to 
downsize and put the money into your other retirement accounts as supplemental funds, right? It's a big piece of security. I totally agree. And I think it's one of those places where we can get or personal finance nerds can get lost in the math a little bit of saying like, well, you're better off renting and investing the difference if we ever actually did (laughs) that, right? Um, And it's one of the many places where investing is emotional, right? So I want to take it for a second and go to that second step you talked about of spending less than you take home. So why is spending so emotional for us and getting control of it, we really need to be introspective a bit. Spending is emotional because we are creatures of impulsivity. Our bodies react to instant gratification. You know, you want a piece of chocolate, you eat a piece of chocolate, you get a little burst of happiness, right? That is not just a Hershey's commercial, right? That is a biological response for many, many people. It's a little bit like love, right? And spending money gives us that. When you see the item and spend the money and get the item, you get the dopamine rush. And that makes it really hard to steer clear of spending money when you don't want to spend it. I mean, spending is something that we do when we're having a bad day. It's something we do when we're in a bad mood. It's something we do for a pick-me-up. It's something we do when we've had a glass of wine and we're sitting at night in front of the computer because our guard is down. And so the best way to get yourself into a place where you protect yourself from this emotional kind of spending, I think, is to save first. If you check the boxes on the money that you need to save and you do it through automatic transfers into the various places that you're trying to save, retirement, emergencies, etc., then you can't hurt yourself as much. Maybe you spend your discretionary income on something that you regret, but it's not going to mess up your long-term goals. It's like the four savings of your house, right? That money is automatically going to the places it's supposed to go. There's a limit, right, on that dopamine rush even. If we're doing, if we're going out and buying a new pair of shoes every day, we're eventually not going to enjoy it anymore, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's diminishing returns. Absolutely. I'm curious, and, and there might not be a story from this, but in the Her Money Happy Hours, have you had people talking about spending and whether what they've struggled with or ways they found to cut back and find other ways to create joy in their lives? I can't remember an example from a happy hour specifically, but I I did have an example actually. So my co-author on the book I wrote right before Women with Money was called Age Proof. I wrote it with a doctor named Mike Roizen, who's the chief of wellness at the Cleveland Clinic. And it's it's about the fact that we're living longer and how to how to live longer without running out of money or breaking a hip. That was a <laughs> subtitle. It just came out in paperback. So one of the, the exercises that I put in the book was to track your spending, not just for the purpose of tracking your spending, which by the way, is incredibly valuable for people who haven't done it, but tracking it so that you could then go back over it and see where you felt you had spent wisely and where you felt you regretted those expenses. And Mike did this exercise. And what he found was that he 
and his wife were spending a lot of money on dinners out, like more than he thought. He was just sort of blown away. And, I, and I've seen a lot of people experience this, that you spend more money on things that you really didn't think you were spending money on. And he thought about what he valued in that experience. And what he really liked about the dinners was not the food so much. So I don't think I'm, I'm giving away any big secrets here, but I've eaten with Mike many, many times. I've never seen him order anything but salmon grilled dry. Like he is a creature of habit. And so for him, it's not about the food. It was about the company. And he decided with his wife that they were going to just go to cheaper restaurants. Like they'd still go out as much. They'd still go out with their friends. It wasn't the white tablecloth that mattered. It was the company. And so they were able to cut their spending that way. I love that, finding the values and the priorities. I'm curious, what is your favorite thing to spend money on? How does your value-based budgeting? Wow. Um, I like spending money on theater tickets. I was a theater kid growing up, and I, I never regret those dollars, even when I don't really like the show. I like eating out, but it's not like incredibly important to me. I'd rather spend the money on great ingredients and make dinner for friends. And I learned, and this was one of the things that I learned from um, a sociologist named Lois Vitt, who developed something called the Life Values Questionnaire. You can Google it. It's It's interesting. And it sort of talks to the fact that when we, there's a lot of research out there that shows that people are happiest when they spend money on experiences rather than on things. And Lois basically said, yeah, not all people are those people. You know, for some people, it's all about a cozy home. For some people, it's more about security. For some people, it is about the experience. And I fell into the category of, as she described it, throw pillow people. You know, for me, it's having a cozy nest where I can curl up and recover after a hard day of work is important. I love that too. I'm very much <laughs> a home person and a having people over person over many external experiences for sure. I am curious, this is completely unrelated, but what's your favorite show you've seen in the last year or so? Oh boy. Um, I love Jagged Little Pill. That was fabulous. And full disclosure, my husband and I actually invested a little bit in that one. Very that will, cool. Well, you know, we'll see Broadway's dark right now. So, um, <laughs> so, so there goes that, but I did love that. I loved the prom, which closed, I thought much too quickly to kill a mockingbird was amazing. We do see a lot of theater. I'm fortunate that my husband likes theater as much as I do. My husband loves theater. It was one of the difficult parts of moving away from New York several years ago. Is It's one of his favorite things to do. So we found a small local theater in Hartford that is excellent. But Oh, Hartford Stage? Hartford Stage is great. It literally only seats like 50 or 60 people. And they do these tiny shows that they're excellent. But um, And I will think of the name of it, I'm sure, you know, an hour from now <laughs> that we go to. But And the investing in, in the show, I think, is... Obviously, this is not something that a lot of people do, right, is go invest in a show. But one thing that does come up in our audiences a lot is people that are wary of the stock market and look for ways that feel more tangible to them, right? Whether it's like investing in a friend's business or doing crowdfunding investments for startups. 
What advice do you have for those people that are looking at those investments as alternatives? I think you have to make sure that you are appropriately diversified. I mean, I have covered my retirement needs with a traditional, very well diversified investment portfolio. And the money that I put into the Broadway show, fortunately, you know, I could afford to lose because it looks like at this point, you know, who knows what will happen. And I think you have to be very, very careful with these alternatives. If you want to take 5% and take a flyer with that, I'm good with that. And I've invested in a number of startups and and done that in that way. But it's not the money that I'm going to need to, you know, pay rent or mortgage. It's not, it is not that. I do think that if you are a buyer of um, multifamily homes, or if you're a real estate investor, that can be a core part of your portfolio. But I also think you need to understand you're buying yourself a job in terms of managing those places, and you have to be comfortable with that. And that comes with its own set of risks too, right? We're seeing right now with this crisis of if you have tenants that can't pay rent. So when you talk about having a complete investment portfolio that kind of secures your retirement, what guidance do you have on deciding how much is enough? Like both how much should you be saving and and what your target is? The what is enough question is incredibly personal. Most people should take the time to figure out what it's going to cost them to live in retirement and then set goals that will enable them to hit those numbers. The unknowable is healthcare. And so if you look at a curve of how people's spending changes over their lifetimes, what we see is that we spend the most in our 50s, late 40s, early 50s. That makes sense because that's generally when your kids are in college, right? Once your kids are grown and flown, then the spending tapers off. It stays down during the early years of retirement and starts to pick back up again as you start to travel and do those sorts of things that retirees do for fun. But it also starts to pick back up again toward the end of life when you have healthcare needs. And we don't know what those healthcare needs are going to be. So you have to make sure that you are covered for those. There are a number of different benchmarks that people use to chart their retirement savings. I rely a lot on Fidelity's benchmarks, which is that you should have one times your income put away for retirement by the time you're 30, three times by the time you're 40, five times at 50. It might be six times by the time you're 50, eight times by the time you're 60, and 10 times by the time you retire. So that's one set. You know, FireMath does it differently and they say 25 times your annual expenditures. And then you can count on being able to withdraw 4%. But then we get years like this and you have to wonder. And even the 4% rule was built off a 30 year timeline, right? It wasn't exactly. based on retiring at 35 as some fire folks are doing and banking it always being there. Although I have to say, the fire folks that I have talked to, even when they are quote unquote retired, I've come to think of it as as sort of the retiring from the job you hate in order to do the job you love that might pay you a little less. Absolutely. I think a lot of them are focused on FI, not the RE, or the other one I've heard is FIE, which is financial independence entrepreneurship, where they go start their own gig. Many telling people how to retire on fire. <laughs> 
All too true. <laughs> All too true. Okay, so we have these benchmarks. I know that when you tweeted these benchmarks out, I can't remember if it was a year or two ago, it went completely crazy, right? <laughs> yes, and people were very snarky and judgy with me on Twitter. Well, that's Twitter. <laughs> I think everyone's always that way on Twitter. But if you see these benchmarks, right, and you're 40, and you're like, I don't even have one times saved. Does that mean you're never going to catch up? No, it doesn't. It just means you have to increase your savings rate. Let's increase our savings rate. And don't go cold turkey, just nudge it up. You know, nudge it up by 1%, nudge it up by 2%. You'll get there eventually. And what we're seeing actually in the data, which I think is heartening, is that if you work a year or two longer, you make up a huge amount of ground. That makes sense. But that is not something that we can always bank on, right? I think I was reading a study that more women than men assume they're going to work until they're 70, but there's health considerations there too of whether you get pushed out from ageism or you just can't work. We want to be saving as much as we can. Uh, Absolutely. I think that for people who are, you know, are thinking they will work until 70 or longer, I think that what many people don't realize is that you don't always just retire. Sometimes you are retired. You know, a lot of people report having these surprise retirements because of health, because of the fortunes of their company. So saving more than you need is is never a bad idea. Absolutely. All right. And then we'll spend a couple minutes here just on that last point, which is finding a way to give back that makes us feel good. And our audience is moms. So we're very concerned, right, about our kids and how they launch into the world and what legacy we leave behind. So any advice for moms of young kids, both teaching them about money or getting them ready for adulthood? I love an allowance as a teaching tool. I just think that often parents don't do it correctly. The point of an allowance is not just a put money in your kids' hands and say, save it. It's to force your kids into a position where they realize money is a limited resource and they have to make choices about how to use it, just like adults do. I think that an allowance needs to come with a list of things that you know your kids want to spend money on, but that you're no longer going to buy. And that list should grow as they get older and the allowance gets bigger. So then they decide do I want to use my money for this or do I want to use my money for that? And it shouldn't be enough to cover everything, right? You want to force them into a position of choosing. The other thing I I believe is really important is that teenagers have to work. They have to experience earning money that doesn't come from their parents. It's different. I mean, only when I saw this with both of my children, Only when they were the recipient of money that didn't come from me or from their dad did they truly value it and did they start to make the connection that this money was actually an hour of their time. And that's, that's just huge. So with your kids, what did those, that allowance that helped them make choices look like? What were some of the choices you were forcing them to make? You know, my daughter was is very social. There were a lot of things like gifts for her friends, right? The gifts teenage girls want to get each other can get out of control very, very quickly. And so that was on her, right? She would have to decide how much money to spend on these things. Video games, entertainment, nights out with their friends, manicures. I mean, you know, that stuff that I knew that she wanted that I wasn't going to buy anymore. Absolutely. And then on work in particular, this is one that's controversial for some people, right? There's a lot of parents that are like, 
they are already busy with school. We want to make sure they're doing their extracurriculars to get into college. How did you balance that time and have those conversations with your kids about why it was important that they work? I always took the attitude. I mean, I, I, I still think it's true. If you want, it's a cliche, but if you want something done, ask a busy person, right? Because busy people just get things done. My kids did a ton of activities, but I also saw that they had plenty of time to like binge watch shows and, and spend a ton of time just talking with their friends, right? They definitely did some of their work in the summer. They both worked as camp counselors. They didn't have a job in a store. Well, my daughter did, but not until senior year of high school. They did a lot of babysitting. They did a lot of dog walking. They did a lot of that kind of stuff. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Your kids are now adults, right? Or young adults? Young adults. And any advice on that transition? Some, anything you've experienced on moving them into standing on their own two feet? I had a very interesting experience with my son helping him do a budget, which he asked me to help him do. And I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was very, very, I was very touched. But I, I had him do it the way I have everybody do it, which is backwards. I think the best way to budget is to look at where your money's going now, track it for a month, and then massage it so that you save enough and so that it's going to the right places. My son is living in LA. He has a car. He drives to work. And as we were doing his budget, he came up with he needed $250 a month for Uber. <laughs> and I said, but you have a car. <laughs> and he said, yes, but when my friends and I go out on the weekend, we drink and we don't drive. And I said, you need $250 a month for Uber. And we made it work, right? Because the thing about doing this is the numbers don't lie, right? If they do it correctly and they do track it, they're going to tell you where they need money to be able to go. And they're going to be able to look at it and know that there are certain things that are non-negotiable. There are people who are going to, and I, I'm one of them. Look, I buy many days as I head into the city, I buy a nice hot cup of coffee, right? And I do it because I hate the coffee in the office, but I really need a big coffee to get me through the morning. If I were to try to cut that out, I would fail. Yep. So let's be honest about the things that we know we're going to spend our money on so that then we can actually make a budget that's workable. For women that are listening to this that want to start conversations about money with their friends or their spouses or their even their kids, what advice do you have for them on just starting these conversations? You've hosted a lot of these and you've seen people try to have breakthroughs about getting comfortable talking about money. So I'm curious what you've learned. I still come back to a couple of things. One is if you don't know where to start, just take something from the news. Take a story out of the newspaper. Start talking about that. You're not talking about your money off the start. You're just talking about money writ large. That can get you going. You can filter from there to figuring out, okay, what does this mean to me? How does this apply to me? How does this apply to us? And you start those conversations. The second thing is it helps to sometimes schedule them. It helps to, to basically say, hey, I want to talk about money. Can we do it this weekend? Because you know, if it's unusual, then that's helpful as well. 
That's good to know. I like even giving the other person just a little time to prepare themselves, right? Because mm-hmm. they might not be used to talking about money. Yep, exactly. All right, Jean. So before we let you go, we have to do one silly thing and we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where our magical hat asks a question to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Ready. What has been your biggest money mistake and what did you learn from it? Oh boy, I've made so many. (laughs) My biggest mistake was probably early on I cashed out a 401k. And the reason that I did it was that I just didn't know what I was doing. I was young. I didn't understand personal finance. I, I just did it. And what I learned is that when you don't understand something, you should just ask questions until you understand it. And that's sort of something that I have followed all the way along as a reporter. People who sat next to me at various desks at various magazines will attest, you know, there were so many times when I said, I just don't get it. Can you just back it up and try to explain it another way? You know, because I knew that if I didn't understand it, I wasn't going to be able to write clearly about it or explain it to anybody else. This is not stuff that we grow up knowing. This is not stuff that we all you know, that we should be able to know just by fact of being a smart person. You know, it's not the concepts themselves. They just aren't native necessarily. And so just ask your questions. And if you're asking them and you find that people are impatient with you, you're just talking to the wrong people. And that includes financial professionals. That is excellent advice. I love asking questions and making sure you fully understand uh, Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people follow up with you and, and follow your podcast and your all your content? If you go to hermoney.com, you will be able to subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to our newsletters, and you'll find me there. Perfect. We'll have links for that in the show notes, mamas. And Jean, thank you again. I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Chelsea. Mamas, I hope you enjoyed that talk with Jean. I so appreciate her holistic view of finances and her understanding of the emotional sides of money. Her point at the beginning of the episode, that there really aren't a lot of things you need to do to be successful with money, it's just that you have to build the habits and skills to do the same things over and over, was so true. Money, at its core, isn't complicated. We just have to interact with it, understand our own money stories, and put systems in place to make the right choices easier. As always, I've rounded up my top three takeaways from today's episode with Jean to summarize the biggest things we learned and what I hope you carry forward into your financial life. First, pay attention to how much you earn and what your earnings power truly is. We've discussed on the Smart Money Mama show how you can't out-earn your money problems, but that doesn't mean your money issues, getting out of debt, saving for retirement, aren't a heck of a lot easier to solve if you have a good income. We all need to earn money to pay the bills, afford the things we want, have security. So negotiate job offers or ask for a raise. Research what other people with your skills and in your position make. Start a side hustle to diversify your income. Have a sense of what you could do or how you could make money if you lost your job or got divorced. Make sure you're earning what you deserve and have a plan. Second, get clear on your spending values. What matters to you might not matter to me. But as Jean mentioned with her story about her friend Michael, what you think matters might not be the root of it. Michael and his wife thought they loved fancy dinners out, but what they really loved was quality time with their friends. Going to cheaper restaurants cut their expenses, but kept the same level of joy in their lives. 
Spend some time tracking your expenses and journaling about how they make you feel, like we do in our Thriving Money Planner. The clearer you get on what's important to you, the more expenses you can cut without it feeling like a sacrifice. And that extra money can go to the things that you do value and help you save for your future. And finally, third, ask lots of questions and don't be afraid to talk about money. Speaking up and asking questions means we can learn from the knowledge of others, make fewer mistakes, and simply feel less alone in the tough moments of handling our money. Money doesn't have to be a taboo subject. It's part of every one of our lives, and we aren't born knowing all about it. If something doesn't make sense to you, find a professional or someone ahead of you on the journey and ask. Send your best friend an article or podcast episode about money and ask them what they think. The path to reach your goals will feel easier with support and encouragement. You've got this. I want to thank Jean again for joining me on the show and sharing all her amazing knowledge. And thank you for spending some time with me in your busy day. To get links to Jean's book, Women With Money, or to download your free financial emergency preparedness checklist, head to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Jean. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 